Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, hour three. I, I, I don't know that I can find the, I don't know that I can get it. Um, I, I Michael Beschloss, the historian, was on, oh, wait, yes, 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 we have it, we have it. I got the audio. God bless you, Caleb. How did you get this audio up? Let's see. Are you to get credit for it? Nope, but that's okay. Um, it's from Caleb Howell at Mediaite. Caleb Howell deserves credit for this. Someone on my team, please flag that I'm giving Caleb Howell credit for this and make sure he sees it. Michael Beschloss was on with Chris Hayes. This is the most unhinged thing you're going to hear today. Remember, he's one of those historians that has been advising Joe Biden between Michael Beschloss and Joe, John Meacham. We owe them so much credit for giving Joe Biden such bad advice. It's almost like they're a Republican sleeper cell. They've given Joe Biden such bad advice and he's taken every bit of it. And now the GOP will sweep into power because he's taken Beschloss and Meacham's advice to focus on democracy under threat instead of pocketbook issues. Historians who should know the history of what happens when inflation gets out of control. No, no. This is Beschloss with Chris Hayes on MSNBC. I mean, literally, I should go with PMSNBC because the way this this audio sounds. Michael, we, we spoke the last time the president gave address about democracy and about the context for it, about how unprecedented uh, it is. This speech seemed in some senses more specific about the developments that we're seeing everywhere from the Arizona poll stalkers to the secretaries of state who who refuse to uh, say that they'll accept the elections. What do you view as the key takeaway of the speech tonight? Well, he was absolutely candid and he was absolutely right, because, as you know, Chris, six nights from now, we could all be discussing violence all over this country. There are signs that that may happen, may God forbid, that uh, losers will be declared winners by fraudulent uh, election officers or secretary of state candidates or governors or state legislatures. We could be six days away from losing our rule of law and losing a situation where we have elections that we all can rely on. You know, those are the foundation stones of a democracy. So if Biden had gone on the air tonight and said, biggest thing we have to worry about is, you know, marginal tax rate or something like that, well, it is important. But what significant presidents do, I think you'll agree, we both write history, you and I. 1860, Lincoln didn't say biggest issue is land-grant colleges, although he felt strongly. He said the country can't survive half-slave or half-free. 1940, Franklin Roosevelt didn't say, you know, the biggest thing I'm worried about is farm policy. Uh, Farm policy was important to him, but what he did say was, never before since Jamestown and Plymouth Rock has America been in such danger. Mm. Joe Biden is saying the same thing tonight. And a historian 50 years from now, if historians are allowed to write in this country, and if there are still free publishing houses and a free press, which I'm not certain of, but if that is true, a historian will say what was at stake tonight and this week was the fact whether we will be a democracy in the future, whether our children will be arrested and conceivably killed, 
we're on the edge of a brutal authoritarian system, and it could be a week away. <laughs> I'm so glad. Oh, I'm so glad. Oh, we're on the verge of a deeply authoritarian system. Our children could be arrested and killed. We may not have a free press. And it could be six days away. Joe Biden had to talk about this. Oh, good Lord. These people are high on their own supply. This is absurd. This is so absurd. You know we're going to have an election in two years. The only way we don't have an election in two years is if the Democrats are the authoritarians and don't hold an election and recognize the results. Hmm? They become what they say they hate. This is This is really rich. And you know he believes it. They all believe it. They all believe the stupid stuff. Our democracy is not threatened. The only thing that's threatened is Democrats' power, but they've convinced themselves, since they're the Democratic Party, they are the keepers of democracy's flame. Uh, this is this is absurd. This is why you should go vote Republican. Honest to goodness, in, in all honesty, those of you who are independent voters, this actually is why you should vote Republican. Because the level of hysteria and fear on the left, they really believe this stuff. You've got to expose them to Republicans being in charge so that they understand their fear was overblown. And it will discredit the fear mongers like Michael Beschloss. If you keep playing to their fears, you only enable their fears. If you vote Republican and they realize, oh, gosh, we're going to have an election in two years. I thought democracy was over. I guess not then suddenly it's a wake-up call for so many people that so many of these irresponsible voices on MSNBC are nut jobs who really believe their stuff. Now, Stan Greenberg, I mentioned this earlier, Stan Greenberg is one of the most respected pollsters of the Democratic Party. He runs Democracy Corps. He and James Carville study things for the Democrats. This is his headline and subheadline in The American Prospect, a far-left American political publication. How Democrats Mishandled Crime. The most effective issue for Republicans in this midterm is a result of Democratic elite failing to understand what their diverse base of working-class voters want. The 2022 midterms will be remembered as a toxic campaign, but an effective one in labeling Democrats as pro-crime. When voters in our survey were asked what they feared the most if Democrats win full control of the government, 56% rushed to choose crime and homelessness out of control in cities and police coming under attack, followed by 43% who chose the southern border being open to immigrants. These two outpointed voters, worries about Congress banning abortion, nationally and women losing equal rights. When Democrats were still competitive in the congressional ballot throughout the fall, they trailed Republicans by 13 points on which party would do better on crime. A quarter of Democrats in October said Republicans would do a better job. That included a quarter of black voters and a stunning half of Hispanic and Asian Americans. So I was asked repeatedly by colleagues in campaigning Democrats, what should we be saying on crime and when I'm attacked for defunding the police? To be honest, Democrats were in such terrible shape on crime at this late point, I said speak as little as possible or mumble. Nothing they've said up until now was reassuring or helpful. Obviously, they should respond if attacked, demonstrating respect for the police and rejecting defunding, but they should move as quickly as possible to change the subject 
preferably the cost of living, where Democrats have a real policy offer and pose a real electoral choice. But Democrats cannot change the subject for long. They have to go back to the choices they made in the tumultuous year of 2020, moral, ideological, and strategic choices that I believe branded the Democrats in ways that alienated them from key parts of their own base. I wrote after the 2020 election the prospect that we just witnessed a race war where Donald Trump did everything possible to heighten racial conflict and focus the country on the breakdown of law and order and rising crime in African-American cities. I accepted that Democrats had no choice but to defeat Trump's racist campaign and win a mandate to address racial justice. I knew that suited Trump's advisor, Steve Bannon, who was counting on American racism to fuel Trump's Republican Party. To battle to defeat Trump's race war, however, blinded many from seeing the priorities and needs of working-class African-Americans, Hispanics, and Asian-American voters. You got that? It's all a racist trope from Republicans that crime is an issue, but oh my gosh, black voters, Hispanic voters, and Asian voters believe the racist trope. I always love this when guys like Stan Greenberg and, and Roy uh, Texera, they say, oh, hey, you know what? Uh, we need to be the, the the party of the white working class. We need to be the party of the, of the working class and we'll get people in or we need to talk about crime. But uh, those Republicans are racist and yet they're beating us. And well, it's because you Democrats, you didn't do exactly what we said. No, no, they did exactly what you said. You didn't nuance as well as you probably should have nuanced, pollster. Here's a problem. The Democrats have convinced themselves crime's not a problem. You can't talk honestly and authentically about something you don't believe is a problem. This is Stan Greenberg again. America was a mess during the pandemic and the halting year of getting back to normalcy. One part was the rise in crime in American cities. They experienced rises in violent crimes and murders. In 2021, New York saw an 11% increase in overall crime, including near 16% increase in robberies. Detroit witnessed an almost 5% increase in violent crimes from 2020 to 2021. Philadelphia set a homicide record in 2021 with 562 deaths, up 13% from 2020. Atlanta had a two-year total of 315 murders, which accounts for a two-thirds increase compared to the two years prior. When Trump put the spotlight on high crime rates in Democrat-run cities, we retorted with the high crime rate in Republican cities. But where was the worry about community safety? Where were our plans to address crime? We were stymied by our rightful outrage over the repeated examples of police abuse and need to bring reforms. Yet if you ask our own voters, as I did after the election, they think our plan was defund the police. The loudest voices in the Democratic Party wanted that. The loudest voices of the Democratic Party wanted to defund the police. They weren't the majority, to be sure, but they were the loudest voices. They were the ones the Democrats didn't push back against. It's remarkable that we're here at this point, at the end, where Democrats spent a whole year, a whole year, telling us it's no big deal. And the voters have told us all along it's a very big deal. It's a very big deal. 
And the Democrats want you to believe it's not. The Democrats want you to believe you're a racist if you're concerned about it. The Democrats, they're out to lunch on these issues. They don't really understand that you, particularly if you're non-college educated, if you haven't gone to college, if you're working class, you're really concerned about crime in the suburbs and the cities. They just think you're a racist when you're black or Hispanic and you're worried about crime in the streets, you're worried about drugs, you're worried about the border, you're worried about the spillover effects of gang violence, and they don't have an answer for you. And so you're going to vote Republican because you want safe streets. Joe Biden will pivot. The Republicans will fund the police in Washington and work with mayors and governors to implement stronger law enforcement funding and tactics. Biden will not stand in their way because it will yet again set the Democrats up as being anti-police. They can't afford that after getting a drubbing with Hispanic voters this year. The progressives will scream and complain and amplify the Democrat defund voices. The Democrats have kind of put themselves in a box here. And their only way out is to silence the progressives. But the progressives get disproportionate airtime from the media because the media is sympathetic to those progressives. The Republicans, meanwhile, will steamroll through on Election Day and have the backs of police and of communities that want to be safe. Let's pause and just talk about what's going on in the country for a moment. We got sky-high inflation. We got runaway government spending. Trust in Washington is completely eroded. When government is this dysfunctional, you got to change the course of the country. You know you have to. That's why I'm excited about the work Americans for Prosperity is doing. They're focused on policy solutions that actually improve people's lives, unlike so many in D.C. who just want to play political football and have power. Americas for Prosperity doesn't just come up with solutions. They act on those solutions. They have the largest network of community activists in the country. They are out there every day talking to millions of their fellow Americans. If you're interested in seeing how you can get started with Americans for Prosperity in your community, visit americansforprosperity.org slash Eric today. That's americansforprosperity.org slash Eric, E-R-I-C-K. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson here. Alex Epstein coming up at the bottom of the hour to talk about fossil fuels. Here is what John Kerry said the other day. Ford Motor Company and General Motors and other companies around the world have spent hundreds of billions of dollars retooling their plants. Why? Because they're going electric. And by 2035, that's all we're going to have in America, electric cars being manufactured, not on the road, but being sold in, in new cars. That's President Biden's goal. By 2035, he wants the power sector of America to be carbon free. So if we accelerate these efforts, which is what technology and entrepreneurial activity help us to do, uh, this is going to change even faster. And, and so that's where I draw enormous hope and, and some optimism because I believe we can still make this happen. But we have to make the right decisions and implement those decisions. Friends, John Kerry wants you driving your electric car. Don't plug it up in the evenings in California or you'll take out the power grid. This is not a solution for everyday working Americans. We're not going to get rid of fossil fuels. It's a pipe dream the Democrats are trying to sell. So a buddy of mine, my buddy Matt, 
Matt, if you're listening, yes, we do need to play golf. He was asking me, do I pay any attention to the Great Reset stuff? What do I think about it? What I think about it is that the left at the elite level, they're very open and honest about what they want to do. And what the Great Reset is, is they do want to reprioritize and reorder the world. They've always wanted to, but this is very much like the whole one world government stuff from the 80s and the 90s. These are the things they want, but they can never implement it because of this icky little thing called a voter. Yeah, I absolutely believe that uh, they want to command and control society, that they control, they command, and they rule, and that you, the people, must be subsidiary to them and their needs, and you're just supposed to be a worker bee for them. It's very elitist. It's very modern aristocracy. But it won't work because voters vote. And as long as you have the right to vote, it works. If anything, this whole threat to democracy stuff is the Democrats are trying to provoke a crisis where they get to hold on to power and, and empower the Great Reset. But it's it's a pipe dream, utopian pipe dream. And as long as people get to vote in the West, it can't happen. The voters keep voting out the Great Reset people, and it just makes them more angry, but they lose power every day. By the way, there is some breaking news here right now that I need to bring up to speed bring you up to speed on something that's happened for the very first time. Dr. Oz is now in the lead in the real clear politics polling average. He has surged ahead of um John Fetterman for the very first time. Herschel Walker in Georgia has the largest lead ever over Raphael Warnock in the real clear politics polling average. And now Adam Laxalt is clearly breaking away from Catherine Cortez Masto. Uh, the momentum in Nevada is all headed Adam Laxalt's way at the end. This was always going to happen. By the way, you want really bad news for the Democrats? This is John Ralston, who is a Democrat in Nevada. Numbers tell the story, and it's not a good one for the Democrats. The Clark County firewall is low. Rural landslide is deep. Washoe County is even. Democrats statewide lead is about 1.5%, which is a very small margin for error. This is not like recent cycles at all. The wave keeps building. And we should see, we should have data by now that the Democratic counterwave has built. There's no data to show one. What's coming is doom for the Democrats. One day, Democrats, don't worry, one day you'll be back on top. There's no such thing as permanence in American politics, and any political party that believes there's such thing as a permanent political majority in America is wrong. They always have been and they always will be wrong. The voters swing back and forth to check each party's power, to humble each party. There will come a day when I will be sitting behind this microphone and my listeners will be mad at me for telling them doom is coming for our side. I've done it before. I've lived that in 2018, and my listeners were furious with me. When I knew Romney was toast in 2012 and hinted at it on radio, Katie Barladore, the emails were so awful from people. But I was just trying to tell people what I knew was going to go on, what I knew was going to happen. And now it's your turn, Democrats, even if your reporters at your public radio and television stations don't want to tell you the truth, I will. Doom is coming for you this time. It's not going to be pretty, but you will recover. You always do. Democracy lives on even after Election Day here. The holidays are the most exciting time of year, and if you want to enjoy them to the fullest, you need to get the best night's sleep every single night. 
particularly before your kids wake you up early during the holidays. My goodness gracious. It's easier than it sounds, though. You need the softest, most luxurious, organic cotton sheets from Bowling Branch. Their sheets are made from the finest 100% organic cotton threads on earth. They make a difference you can truly feel night after night. Forget the script that they gave me to read. Y'all, let me just tell you, Bowling Branch... I sleep on their sheets, and they get softer every single time I wash them. They are so soft at this point. Like, they start out, and they're fine. They're good sheets. You can tell they've got a nice weight to them. They've got a good thread count. The quality of the fabric is is very nice. But the more you wash them, the more you realize how good they are because they get softer, but they don't fray. That makes a real difference. I can tell you, I sleep on Bowling Branch sheets. I bought them myself even. They didn't send them to me as an advertiser. I actually bought them. We've been buying them for a while. They're towels and other things as well. But their signature sheets, they come wrapped and ready in a beautiful holiday gift box for you. Your gifts are going to look great. You can give these sheets to people you love. Bring home a better night's sleep this holiday season with Bowling Branch Bedding. For a limited time, 20% off your first set of sheets and free shipping when you use promo code ERIC, E-R-I-C-K, at bowlandbranch.com. That's bowlandbranch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code ERIC, bowlandbranch.com. Just a reminder, tomorrow I will be broadcasting live from WDBO in Orlando, Florida, uh, all my Floridian audiences, looking forward to seeing you down there. And we'll have Tulsi Gabbard on. She's actually swinging through. She went for Lake Masters the other day. She'll be in Georgia uh, tomorrow for Herschel Walker. And then the Georgia Lieutenant Gubernatorial nominee, Burt Jones, is going to be joining me as well. A friend of mine will be on the show. Right now, however, gosh, I've been – so i, I got to be honest with you. I should have had my next guest on a while back. There was a problem, though, and it was a significant problem. He wrote a book, and I intended to read the book before I had him on. And the problem is the book is 480 pages, and I've been a little busy with this thing called a midterm election. But I managed finally to plow through it, and I'm delighted to have Alex Epstein joining me. Alex, how are you? Doing great, and thanks for reading the whole book, Fossil Future. That's that's impressive. Yeah. Okay. So the the book the title is Fossil Future: Why Global Human Flourishing Requires More Oil, Coal, and Natural Gas, Not Less. And I, so you know, I had been talking about this. And Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas, connected the two of us. And what I found it very interesting is you kind of gave the data and the basis for a lot of what I've been saying. In radio, that just when you look at the demands and the growth in the future, there's just no way we're getting away from fossil fuels. Yeah, I mean, I think there, there's a question of what should happen and what will happen, and, and they're, they should be related because part of what will happen in the world is that many people in the world, if not most, will pursue what's in their interest. And what is in their interest is using a lot of energy, and using a lot of energy for most people in most places will mean using a lot of fossil fuel, oil, coal, and natural gas, because that's the most cost-effective option most of the time. You can see this most clearly in China, which had been using some net zero type rhetoric, but recently just said, as everyone should have known, we're not doing that. We're going to use what's best for us. And that means, you know, a couple hundred coal plants in the pipeline designed to last 40 years each. And and it makes sense for them to do that. What, what doesn't make sense, I think, 
is for us to blindly try to restrict and eliminate fossil fuel use when it's the most cost-effective option, because that's not what most of the world will do, and it puts us at a huge disadvantage. Okay, let's let's talk about real quick as a side pivot here uh, the African continent, uh, where you've got uh, the overwhelming majority of that continent is in by American standards below the poverty line. Uh, there's been this deep-rooted fear from the left for a long time that if everybody in Africa gets an air conditioner, we'll, we'll cross the tipping point of global warming, and, and so we can't allow them to develop. And suddenly we're at this point where uh, African nations are exporting natural gas to Europe to make up for what's not coming from Russia. They're starting to make some money, and, and it looks like you know this is a – a way to move African nations further into progress, and yet the left seems really antagonized by the idea. Yeah, I mean, they're antagonized by the idea of them consuming more fossil fuel energy and the idea of them producing more fossil fuel energy. I think the the case of Africa really highlights what's most dangerous about this anti-fossil fuel movement, which is, is to the poorest people in the world, because Basically, our world, what I call the empowered world, which is about 2 billion people who live in prosperity because we're able to use a lot of, of energy, we, are, we sort of have fossil fuels established as part of our way of life. Now, granted, the government is doing a lot of things to restrict access, and that's part of why we have a global energy crisis, including a crisis in Europe. But the biggest damage is places that haven't adopted you know, much fossil fuel they're being prevented from the beginning. And you can see lots of international pressure to prevent Africans from both consuming fossil fuel and producing fossil fuel. So I'm, I'm very actually proud that some of the, the leaders there are now using my work and inspired by my work to demand the right to what I would call fossil fuel freedom. But it, it really shows how regressive this anti-fossil fuel movement is, that it's holding back the poorest people in the world in the name of avoiding climate catastrophe, which we can talk about the basis of that. Yeah, let's actually talk about that because we do have this this idea now, and I'm old enough now to realize we are at the point where the projections of the 90s were now living in those times. And if you go back and you look at the things they were projecting for now, yeah, there, there's – I guess they can make an argument that, that the weather seems to be a little more unpredictable, stronger storms and droughts and the like. But the doomsday scenarios that I remember when I was in high school and college they said would come were still, well, 10 years, well – 10 more years. Well, we're not there. I mean, what is what is all of this? I think the number one thing we should think about with climate in terms of these doomsday scenarios is what has actually happened to the livability of our climate? Because the core claim here is that warming and associated climate change is going to make the climate an unlivable place. And in particular, it's going to increase the death count from extreme temperatures and storms and floods et cetera, et cetera. It's not so much for most people, oh, I don't want it to be one degree warmer. It's I don't want this really dangerous climate that's overwhelming us. And to measure what's happening, we have this great statistic called climate-related disaster deaths, which tallies all the kinds of dangers that I mentioned, the deaths from those. And what, what really surprised me when I got started on this issue was that those deaths are down 98% over the last 100 years. So what that means is a typical person is 150th as likely to die from a climate-related cause as they were in, say, 1920. This is an amazing achievement, and what it really showcases is that whatever climate changes have occurred are trivial compared to our increasing ability to what I call master climate, in particular to neutralize climate danger. So even if we had more drought, our ability to irrigate, to, to, to transport crops 
is far more significant. Uh, with heat, we have air conditioning. With cold, which is actually a bigger threat than heat, we have heating. All of this. So what my point is, fossil fuels allow us to master climate, and that is their most significant climate-related effect, not any warming that they cause. That's a that, that that's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, yeah, and I know in the book you talk about just the the amount of lives spared, but it also gets to something else. Um, and the, I know you've talked about this a lot. In the, the the adaptability of the human species to be able to deal with anything that's coming. It, it I mean, I I read the other day that uh, some developers building a hundred story. Uh, building in Miami, right on the beach. It's going to be a Waldorf Astoria residence and other things. It'll be one of the tallest buildings in Miami. And it just seems like if if people really bought the nightmare scenarios, you wouldn't be building a massive skyscraper on the beach in Miami. And uh, a lot of the people who give us the nightmare scenarios, they're still flying in their private jets and they've all got their beach houses like Obama. I mean, practicing and they, what they preach doesn't really seem to meet. Uh, so in, in practice, they do seem to recognize that climate mastery is more significant than climate change, including negative climate change. One point about changing climate, by the way, that's important is that it's wrong to assume that it's all negative. And this, this goes to my background in philosophy. I think a lot of this, the bad thinking about this issue is philosophical. People have this idea that for us to impact nature is a bad thing. And in particular to impact climate is a bad thing. So they have this idea that it's all going to be negative and that it's going to be catastrophic and we're not going to be able to deal with it. And this is just not science. Why would you expect that a warmer planet would be such a hellscape uh, far more people die of cold than of heat. If you look at the science of warming, it occurs more in cold places during cold times. There's just not this reason to expect apocalypse unless you really have what I think is a primitive uh, anti-human religion, which says basically human beings are evil, our impact is evil, nature's going to punish us if we impact the earth too much. So a, a buddy of mine who's a, a meteorologist who actually he was he was very skeptical of climate change and he's come over time as he's worked on his PhD he he embraces the idea that yes the climate is changing but these the, all the nightmare scenarios that they're, they're so far off there uh, it, it's it's a bunch of shrill people and I hear this from a lot of people and also that uh, if they didn't if they weren't as shrill in the statements they probably wouldn't get the government funding they're getting and so it's almost to prop up their research funding, they've got to give the nightmare scenarios. I mean, what, what do you say when people say that? Is there any truth to that? When they say the thing about the funding? Uh, yeah, the, 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 the scenarios given by a lot of climate researchers are the nightmare scenarios because that ensures they will get the government funding to be able to keep studying the nightmare scenarios. Gotcha. Well, in, in particular, it's with the information or sometimes distortion, often distortion that's presented to the general public. So I'll give you an example. You have these multi-thousand page, what are called assessment reports. So we had one that came out a year or two ago and the headline everyone saw was code red for humanity. But this is a statement by Antonio Guterres, a longtime socialist thug who happens to head the UN. It was not a scientific statement. It wasn't in the report, but that was the received wisdom of the report. So mm -hmm. what you definitely see is that the people whose job it is to portray the science and its implications to the public, they are clearly distorting it. And it's often for its various purposes. So there's a funding element. I think a lot of it is there's a power element. This, this issue is very attractive to people who want more political power because 
if it turns out that every individual by using fossil fuels, and we all use fossil fuels, is contributing to global catastrophe, that's an unlimited license for government control. So there are a lot of powerlessing politicians who find it attractive. But I actually think the core thing is we have this belief that's been driven into us in schools in the last 50 years that our impact on nature is bad, or these parasite polluters who ruin Earth. It's got to be destruction if we're impacting the Earth. And I think that's so saturated the educational system and ultimately the culture that we're kind of driven to fear our impact and think it's going to end in the apocalypse. <laughs> That's the truth. Okay. I want to shift gears real quick before we get out of time. And so I want to talk about you. Uh, you've written a number of books on climate change and have come under just inordinate attacks from the left. And I've always thought they were kind of funny because they don't actually undermine anything you're saying. They try to attack you personally to try to make you discredited, whether it's it's Barbara Boxer and the Senate or some of the things that have been written about you. Um, it, it's just it, it's very interesting to me that no one has really challenged really what you're saying. They just try to say, well, just don't listen to this guy. Um, what's it like to go through that? And, and how do you respond to that sort of stuff? Really, the number one thing that I am concerned with is just not enough people being exposed to me. So even when those attacks happen, I'm pretty okay with that because people can look it up. And yeah, Wikipedia is now distorted. They just started calling me a climate denialist about a week ago, I think, which is just total, totally bizarre. So I really think like my view is I just want people to know to hear about me because the thing is the way I'm arguing on this issue, as you're indicating, the other side doesn't have an answer to it. And one key element is I'm carefully weighing the benefits and the side effects of fossil fuels, just like I would a prescription drug I was considering whether I should take. And the other side ignores the benefits of fossil fuels and they what I call catastrophize the side effects. And they don't have an answer to me pointing this out. So yeah, they want to personally attack me or do a straw man attack and misrepresent my views. But the main thing they want to do is prevent, uh, pretend I don't exist. And I'm, I'm grateful to you and others who have me on their shows uh, because I do exist. And if people want access, of course, they can, uh, to my arguments, they can read Fossil Future, uh, but they can also go to the free website, energytalkingpoints.com, and pretty much all my ideas are there freely available, and please share them with people. Well, and also, uh, folks, if you're listening, if you text the word DATA to 33777, as always, I'll send you back an Amazon link so you can get Alex's latest book. But he's got several others, including The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Uh, you can check these out. Text DATA to 33777. One last question, Alex, before you go. Um, it, Tom Cotton was on uh, CNBC yesterday, and, and Aaron Ross Sorkin seemed a little horrified by the fact that uh, Tom Cotton said something that I think you and I both think is common sense, that we're never actually going to get off of nuclear and fossil fuels as a nation and probably should not be trying to force people to go into battery-powered cars when, in fact, uh, for the poor in this country, in fact, it, it's cheaper to do what they're doing right now with a gas-burning car and, and our power grid there's not even enough battery storage available on the planet right now to be able to hold all the power we would need to do stuff at night. I mean, how do you see these arguments shaping up uh, moving into the future? Do you think reality is ever going to dawn on people? Uh, yeah, I do. I think it's happening already. So just with the battery point, I mean, it's 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 to, to have three days worth of global backup of energy at Elon Musk's best prices is $400 trillion, just to give people an idea of how insane an idea it is to use unreliable energy and then try to back it up with batteries. I'm glad Senator Cotton is making these points. Uh, he was actually on my podcast, Power Hour, uh, earlier this week, and he's read Fossil Future, which I'm, I'm happy to know. So I'm glad he's making some of these points. But I think what's happening is we have this global energy crisis 
And what that really is, is a lack of fossil fuel crisis. And what we're seeing is that this promise that unreliable solar and wind would rapidly replace fossil fuels has come false. And because we we have gutted our ability to a certain extent to produce fossil fuel supply in the world, we're having a crisis. And I think people are now open to ideas like a fossil future that they weren't open to even just a year or two ago. Listen, Alex, it is a delight. Uh, I I made it. It took me a long time, way longer than I expected to get through the book. I apologize about that, but I'm glad you were able to get on with me to talk about this. Thanks so much, Eric. Absolutely. Alex Epstein, the book is uh, Fossil Future. You can get it. Text the word data to 33777. It is over 400 pages, but you learn so much. Fossil Future, Alex Epstein. Text data to 33777. One of the groups that does a lot of research on climate change and why we can't move on from fossil fuels, like the data, the actual data is there. Americans for Prosperity has the data. If you become a member, you get access to that data. You become smarter than all your neighbors. And also, they teach you to become a great grassroots activist in whatever state you're in. They believe in free markets and free people. They want you a part of it. What you do is go to americansforprosperity.org slash eric. Americansforprosperity.org slash Eric. Sign up. Be a member. Start a local chapter. They teach you how to go to the school board and make the best arguments. Show up at the state legislature. Make the best arguments. They give you the best data for free markets and free people. They have not gone wobbly in the past number of years as things in Washington have gone crazy and half the people you look at, you think, hey, we used to agree. What happened to you with AFP? They're as consistent as they've always been in favor of free markets, free people. That's why I like them. That's why I'm one of their fellows. That's why I want you to be a part of them. Americansforprosperity.org slash E-R-I-C-K. Go check them out. And that reminds me, I got to raise the volume on my sounder so I can play the button and go to commercial break. Hello, my friends. It is Eric Erickson here. I have one last soundbite to play. And for the record today, I have played all of them. Well, okay, not Kamala Harris. I don't want to play Kamala Harris today. I've, I've had enough of her. Everybody's had enough of her. I mean, she, they, they're sending her to Manhattan to campaign for Democrats. That tells you even the Democrats have had enough of Kamala Harris when the only places in America she can campaign are San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Manhattan. But this is Jerome Powell. At some point, as I've said in the last two press conferences, uh, it will become appropriate to slow the pace of increases as we approach the level of interest rates that will be sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to our 2% goal. There is significant uncertainty around that level of interest rates. Even so, we still have some ways to go. And incoming data since our last meeting suggests that the ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than previously expected. The ultimate level of interest rates will be higher than previously expected. The Dow right now is up four points. NASDAQ down 117, S&P down 18. Uh, This is not a very good situation. However, uh, the Fed is kind of signaling that things will be winding down. And that will ease some of the maybe market turmoil at the same time. Um, This is going to weigh heavily in the last few days of this election as doom comes, and it really is coming. There are Republicans at this point getting angsty about it, saying, oh, stop saying it, stop saying it. People are not going to go vote. We're, we're going to lose because people aren't going to go vote. I, I, I think people are so fired up at this point. I can't talk people out of going to go vote. People are just fired up at this point. Republicans are up three now 
in the generic ballot. Quinnipiac has come out now and said the GOP is up four, and everyone has widely believed the Quinnipiac model favors the Democrats and is undercounting Republicans by about five. If that's the case, doom really is coming. CNN also has the Republicans up four. NPR has the Republicans up three. NPR has the Republicans up three. And the Republicans always overperform their generic ballot, which means it could really be a five, six-point race. If that's the case, we're looking more 2010 than 2014. I'll be back tomorrow. Tulsi Gabbard's going to be joining me. I'll be in Florida. See you then.